You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Welcome to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 and Aged Care podcast. In this podcast, we're going to look at the issues of being vigilant with early detection and surveillance around COVID-19. We're very fortunate today to have Dr. Sarah Whiting with us from the Alfred Hospital. Hello, Sarah, how are you? Hi, Joe. I'm well. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? I'm dual trained as an infectious disease specialist and also a general physician. I've worked as a consultant for over 10 years, primarily at the Alfred Hospital, where I have worked looking after, amongst other patients, aged care residents that get admitted to hospital with their complex social and medical needs. And I have also worked alongside the MATS, which is our in-reach service into nursing homes, in advisory roles from time to time. And in addition to that, I've worked in regional communities, including Indigenous communities throughout the Northern Territory. Thanks. It sounds like you're the perfect person to take us through a fairly complicated situation. I wanted to walk our way through the impact of COVID from when we're well through to the eventual outcomes. I was wondering if you could tell us what the trajectory or chronology is starting from when we're well to how we get the virus and what then happens with the infection. So essentially everyone is susceptible to uh, COVID-19 caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And we initially thought that perhaps children were not likely to get infected and now there is data showing that they probably do get infected. But primarily, once everyone gets infected, age and comorbidities seem to dictate what sort of outcome you'll have. So we know that the older you are, for example, the more likely you are to have severe symptoms and, in fact, higher mortality. So in terms of what the illness itself looks like, it presents like a respiratory illness that we're used to in terms of a sore throat, cough and shortness of breath and fever. They are the predominant symptoms and as people can sometimes get more severe illness, the shortness of breath in particular can predominate and interestingly enough, even though you might be well for the first five days with those respiratory-like symptoms, after about that time period, especially five to eight days, there are some people that can have a deterioration and get particularly short of breath. And that's really related to an immune response that the body mounts to the virus, even though it might appear like all other upper respiratory tract viral infections to begin with, it does have that unique ability where you can have quite a serious turn for the worse. Probably the most obvious example of that would have been what happened to the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Yes, that's a really good example, actually. So 
Boris was well, as we saw on the TV screens. He was running the country from self-isolation at 10 Downing Street. And then I think at about day six or seven, he had a turn where he was admitted to hospital and then actually in intensive care. My understanding is he didn't need any respiratory support in terms of oxygen. It was really just that he was put there as a precautionary measure because it was appreciated that you can have this quite severe turn after about five days. Sarah, it would be helpful to understand the course of the disease when you are and when you aren't infectious and just how contagious it is. In terms of perhaps starting with how contagious it is, so how likely you are to get infected if you're exposed, on average the attack rate is about 60%. So we've seen that from examples like the Diamond Princess cruise ship and also in nursing home facilities such as the Washington State example. So we know that about 60% of people that are exposed in substandard infection control environments will likely get infected. Not all of those people will get symptoms. Uh, it's unclear exactly how what percentage will be asymptomatic throughout their course. Uh, initially, it was thought perhaps to be around the order of 10%, but then we drilled down more into that cohort that came out of China initially. A lot of those people actually then went on and developed symptoms. So it's probably much lower, probably less than 5% of people will be asymptomatic throughout their entire infection. But we do know that like other viruses such as measles, people can become infectious before they have symptoms. And with COVID-19, it's likely you're infectious for 24 hours before you have symptoms. And then out of the patients that become symptomatic, Not all patients will have a severe course. It's really important to realise that the vast majority, over 80% of people, will have a mild respiratory-like illness, which we'll be able to manage at home and in the community. And there's only a small percentage, 15 to 20% at most, that will require some support in hospital. And then a smaller percentage, 5%, that will require critical care. What actually happens when say you first get the virus. So I'm a well person and then someone coughs on me with COVID and the virus has started to replicate in my body. If I could talk you through the stages just like that to get a sense of it. Sure. So essentially, if you come in contact with the virus, then it initially generally infects your upper respiratory tract and continues to multiply and it moves down into the lower respiratory tract and We do appreciate now that it can even disappear from the upper respiratory tract by the time it's made its way down into the lower respiratory tract, so predominantly the lungs. And there is sometimes virus detected in stool as well, so we appreciate that the virus must transit through the the system, the whole body, and be excreted to an extent in some people in the stool. Whether that is another route of infection is a bit of a controversial point at the moment. At the moment, even though virus has been detected in the stool, only very small amounts of viruses have been detected in the stool. So that's why it's thought at present that the predominant cause of transmission is through respiratory droplet secretions. So the first sign that I actually have the virus is going to be in the upper respiratory tract usually? It doesn't 
quite work like that. Uh, humans are very complex, as you would appreciate, and people that are susceptible to the virus might have a pre-existing lung condition, for example. And we know that even in that group, so perhaps if we narrow it down to that emphysematous group, they will become short of breath just from an upper respiratory tract infection. It is possible that shortness of breath is just related to the initial part of the infection as well. And that's not just exclusive to the people that have pre-existing lung disease. That could be part of the syndrome. I'm not clear as to the exact timing that that transition happens, but symptoms of shortness of breath can happen also early on in the illness as well as down the track, as I alluded to before. So early on in the illness, when I've got these symptoms, either upper respiratory or lower respiratory, and then assuming I go through a period of being sick where I either become very sick and need to go to ICU or I recover. And then at the end, there's a period of shedding the virus and not being contagious at all. If I'm working in the aged care sector, when should I be most scared about things being contagious? Being infectious, yeah. It's a good question. And it's actually the early part of the infection, unlike the initial SARS virus, SARS-CoV-2 has higher viral shedding in the first 24, 48 hours of illness. And particularly if you are symptomatic, you are more likely to shed the virus and cause infection to other people. So in that early stage, I guess, if I'm working in a home, I'm thinking that's the stage that I want to isolate people the most because if it's most contagious, then it's early in the illness. It's probably pretty important for me to, to pick that up pretty early in, in residence. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. We do know if we want to contain the virus and prevent an outbreak in our residential care facilities, that early detection is absolutely crucial. And even before detection, uh, actually putting preemptive measures to isolate residents that are displaying respiratory symptoms is really important. And just to get an understanding of the end of the illness, assuming that the person recovers fully, when roughly do they cease to become contagious? In most cases, the clearance of the virus is more done by symptomatology with a bit of a buffer that you have had to have at least 10 days from the onset of your illness. That might be being overcautious, we don't know, but it's better to err on that at the moment while we're still learning about this virus. Just to be clear on this, that there are specific guidelines that have been published on it that people should be looking at. I think one of the things, Sarah, I wanted to check is when you said that people had no fever, my reading was that it had to be no fever and that they weren't taking Panadol or any other tablet that would normally lower their temperature. Is that correct? Yes, that would be a reasonable assumption that a fever could be masked by a Panadol. I think that is a very logical interpretation. Sarah, another question that people are asking at the moment is, is it as simple as I've either caught the virus or I haven't, or does it matter how much of the virus enters my system at the beginning? That's a good question, and it is now being appreciated that the higher your inoculum, so the initial virus that enters your system, probably correlates with the more severe disease that you will end up having. Sarah, thanks for providing that background, which will help us better understand what we should be doing next. I want to now give you the hypothetical situation of let's imagine that we've got 100 residents. 
and that we're trying to group them into categories. And we've used a traffic light system here of green, yellow, and red. And we're calling green the residents that are presumed clear, that we don't have any concerns that they have COVID or that they've been exposed to COVID. The yellow category is the one where we suspect there's an issue, um, but we're not quite sure. And the third category is uh, what we've called red, and that's a confirmed case. Sarah, what's your advice in monitoring and screening persons that we uh, believe are in the green category that currently do not have an infection? So at this stage of the pandemic, it is important to be on the lookout for patients that may possibly develop COVID-19. So that would entail doing a check on every resident of the facility every day and screening for the symptoms that we've spoken about, in particular cough, sore throat and shortness of breath, as well as doing a set of observations, including, most importantly, a check of their temperature. And we have defined in the latest set of at least Victorian guidelines the temperature to be 38 degrees or greater. If a resident exhibits either a temperature or one of those symptoms that at least in the Victorian guidelines, that would mean they become a suspected case. Is checking them once a day enough or do you think it would be better if we were able to do that twice a day or on every shift? Yes, I mean, the reality is the more often you do it, the more likely you are to pick it up. I guess we have to work within the capabilities of what the nursing homes can actually do. But in the ideal world, that if it could be done every shift, that would even be better. What do you suggest people do to make sure that everyone has been checked regularly? A symptom checklist, essentially, in an easy format that can be uh, printed out every day and that is easy for all staff in nursing homes, whether they be PCA or registered nurses, to follow. And that way, at the end of a shift, for example, or a day, you could make sure that everyone's been ticked off and had all their symptoms charted. And I would also add another column, the temperature as well. So I'll come to the temperature in a moment. I just want to look a little bit more around the symptom checking. And again, I draw on my experience where everyone's got a different sense of whether a, a symptom is present or absent. And my feeling at the moment is that if someone's got a, a mild symptom, that there may be a tendency not to report that because it's going to generate a whole lot more work. When is a cough? important enough to report or when is a sore throat a sore throat I should be worried about? Any degree of sore throat or cough should trigger the necessary next stage of that patient becoming a suspected patient and even though it might seem like a lot of work in that setting it will be a lot more work if there is an uncontrolled outbreak in the facility so that's probably what we need to keep in mind. It might seem onerous, but you probably can't be too cautious in this environment. The other question I had really is more specific to aged care and particularly residential aged care, where older people with dementia 
uh, often will not volunteer information with a, a checklist or might not show the, the same symptoms. Do you have any thoughts around how our older residents might present other than the classical presentation? Sure. I mean, I think it's still important to ask the questions, but then also when you can't get a history to just use your own observation skills. So clearly if someone's coughing, even if they can't communicate that to you, then that is a cough and that person then needs to be treated as a suspected case. We do know in the older cohort of people, especially if there's a background of cognitive impairment, that all infections can present non-specifically too. So that could include increasing confusion or a delirium. There is an absence in the screening guidelines for this population because I think we will see delirium as a cause of COVID. And yes, you're right. Like We won't be able to ask some people about whether they've got a sore throat and that might be the only symptom they have. Thanks, Sarah, for raising those points. If we just go back now to the green category, so we've done the symptom checklist, we've taken in our own observation of the person, and now we're doing the vital signs or the clinical measurements that we're all familiar with, the taking the temperature, pulse, blood pressure, you know, these days respiratory rate and oxygen levels. You noted that the temperature measurement was the most important. Is that the only thing that we should be doing? I think especially because shortness of breath can be subjective and difficult to pick up in people with cognitive impairment, that respiratory rate is also very important. So an elevated respiratory rate greater than 24 would make you think that the patient had shortness of breath and that would allow you to tick that box. In terms of oxygen saturations, it is important in that it helps grade the severity of the illness. It's not being used as part of the diagnostic criteria, but it becomes important in that group that you think have suspected disease. And blood pressure and pulse are also important, of course, just as a general measure of overall health. So, Sarah, there's another question about fever in the elderly. I've read in the past that maybe 20 to 30% of elderly people with serious viral infections can present with a blunted or entirely absent fever response. The two questions there. One, does the 38 degree parameter come across the entire population or is it specific to older people? And also, can we rely on someone being afebrile if they're coughing? You know, I mean, I, that's an obvious question, I guess, for you, but just to clear that up. If they don't have a fever, does that mean they don't have COVID, for example? If they don't have a fever, it does not exclude COVID. As you mentioned, elderly people might not get a fever as part of an illness more commonly than younger people, in fact. And in fact, older people can present with hypothermia as a marker of infection. So it shouldn't be the only thing that you look at. And in fact, that is, I believe, part of the reason why the guidelines have been broadened to basically encompass that fact that it is not just fever that predicts COVID or any other infection for that matter. So that's why it now stands as being a fever or a respiratory symptom. 
And should we be strict about the 38 degree in an older person? Say if someone's got a baseline temperature of 36 and then suddenly they they jump to 37.5, is that relevant for us or not? Look, it is relevant in that you, that's a group that you would most likely want to check more often. And in that situation, increase your observations to at least six hourly. Sarah, I wanted to talk to you now both about the respiratory rate and the use of pulse oximetry to measure people's level of oxygen. Most facilities, I expect, will not have very many pulse oximeter machines around. Just how important is it to be able to measure someone's oxygen levels in this situation? Really, once you've made the diagnosis, probably the next most useful thing in terms of grading their severity is to look at how they're oxygenating. If we are considering active management of a person in a nursing home with COVID, it would be important to look at the oxygen levels. If they're patients that we're screening that we are currently trying for early detection, we don't need to do the pulse oximetry at the moment if they're in the green category? I think it's not essential for the green category because in that group we're really just looking at screening criteria to see if they meet the suspected classification and that does not involve oxygen saturations and in fact hypoxia is probably a late sign and so just focusing on picking up those earlier signs, cough, shortness of breath in your screening is most likely to be adequate but when you're moving on to actually deciding how severe their illness is then pulse oximetry becomes very important. A lot of people are asking about tests, tests as a, as a method to screen. Can you explain why we don't do that or is that going to change in the future potentially? Now there is limited resources with the testing kits so that's why we have had to focus on the people that are most likely to be positive just so we've got the highest case detection rate and get the most bang for our buck if you like out of the testing kits. Is that something that do you think might change in the future? Testing becomes more available and we're doing it more regularly on the aged care population as a screening tool? It will have to be a mandatory part of keeping a lid on this pandemic going forward, especially if we were to do some releasing of social distancing. And that would include in the nursing homes. Definitely in an outbreak situation, ideally you would want to screen everyone if you had the resources, even if they were asymptomatic. All right, so we might come back to that. I just wanted to wrap up this section on the green category. So my understanding then is we need to be doing minimum of daily screening of symptoms that are classic for COVID, symptoms for older people where we know there might be changes in their functional ability or they present with atypical symptoms and to be doing their vital signs, particularly their temperature. Ideally, we wanna be doing that twice a day if we can do it every shift, that would be preferable. And we need a really good system that makes sure that every person in the facility has had that done every day. And so having someone coordinate and check on that is vital. Is there anything that I've missed in that green category, Sarah? 
Yeah, I was just going to say in that green category, I think it's obviously very important not to introduce infection into that group of people. And so by now, most facilities will already be restricting visitors. But other methods that you can employ to help protect that group is to screen all staff members for a temperature too and for symptoms at the start of their shift and also just practice universal precautions. So in particular, hand hygiene. It's really important in the setting of a pandemic that we don't let our baseline standard precautions slip and that they're maintained. Sarah, thanks again for joining us. 